Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, and welcome to the first show of what is to be a consequential year in American history of 2019. Happy New Year to you all. And uh, it's... uh, I guess good to be back in the saddle. I've given myself a bit of a break and uh, tried not to obsess about you know what and the news in general. Uh, so might be a little slow getting started here today. I uh, I came upon something actually this morning that I find. Uh, right on the money. I have dovetails, of course, with my, my feelings. Um, and, and I think it's a, a probably a good thing to try to keep in our minds uh, as we venture <laughs> into the unknown of uh, life. And those of you who've listened to me for a long time know that I've, I've always thought that the founding fathers phrasing uh, things as they did messed up a lot of our heads and and phrasing things a specific phrase being uh, the pursuit of happiness. (laughs) I think it screwed me up. I really thought happiness was the be all and end all. You know, it's like the holy grail the pursuit of happiness, as if that is what our lives are. And I think we do tend to buy into that. And I think it's a bad idea. Uh, For one thing, I have found in my life that happiness can't be pursued. Now, maybe there's a difference just in the way they used language. You know, but but as I read it as a child, learning about our foundational documents, the pursuit of happiness was put out there to me as a that's the ideal. And um, what that does to us is make us feel that when we are not happy, that something is wrong, right? That something needs to be fixed. And that's where I think we, I, I know I go wrong, and I think a lot of other people do too, because happiness can't be appreciated without its opposite. Just like I said, th- I never understand how, why people don't want to live in a temperate climate, because how do you not appreciate flowers and greenery and the coming back to life of spring that spring brings with it. How, if you live in a climate in which all those things are always there, I don't, I don't know. I think for me, I need the opposites, the contrasts, the the changes in uh, what is the norm. And our lives, of course, are not filled with happiness. They're filled with all kinds of emotions, and each of them 
life. <laughs> life ain't happiness. I mean, I know you wouldn't pursue unhappiness, but it it's part of our lives, right? So I was reading this thing this morning, and I it's it's just a it's a lovely little. I'm gonna try to keep it in my head. Uh, the, the woman writing this, and I'm sorry I don't have her name right available to me, says this. She talks about, well, well, she says that there are other emotions that are equally deserving of being encountered and lived through and accepted, taken in. And she says, it reminds me of a miraculous moment I experienced almost an entire lifetime ago as a very little girl. I was standing at the open screen door of my grandmother's porch, and we were gazing out together at the falling snow. She told me as we were standing there to look at beautiful things like the falling snow through two prisms with a first-time freshness, as though it was the first time you've ever seen falling snow. And also with a finality, as though it might be the last time you'll ever see it. And if you think about that, to go through life, encountering everything that comes your way as if it's the first time. So with wonder and awe and joy and curiosity and all of those things, and then to also remember to look at it as if you'll never see it again. And then would come such intense appreciation, right? So I just want to say this miraculous moment that this woman is telling us that she remembers with her grandmother looking out at that snow and her grandmother's incredible advice to look at things. Well, she specifically said to look at beautiful things as if it were for the first time and as if it were for the last. I I love that. Uh, so she says, so there's a business of not just well, she says, "What will I choose to be happy or will I choose to be sad in the new year? And she said, that's an easy one. I'm going to choose both. Yeah. The uh, theory of opposites. Says that, what's that wonderful um, uh, animated film? Uh, 
about the inside where where all the little animated characters are 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 running the uh the life the emotions of uh, a little girl on on earth um inside out inside out and that movie which i think is very wise actually about how emotion works the point of that movie at you know which makes very clear at the very end is that uh happiness and joy cannot be there without sorrow and sadness so i'm just saying i think if we were to try to keep that in our heads i think we'd be happier people <laughs> actually we yeah there's something that comes with acceptance of a reality of what life is and it sure as hell is not the pursuit of happiness it just drives me crazy i think it's just the biggest mistake they made the illustrious founding fathers seriously that's just my my take well, we're still here. We weren't sure. You know, you never know. Uh, and we're starting a new year, and this is going to be, well, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be scary. And um, I hope to keep my footing. I suppose I will on, on occasion and on other times not. Did you see the, uh, the New York Times on Sunday in the smallest print imaginable, because it had to be, printed every Twitter insult that the President of the United States tweeted out in the past year. I don't know if they got them all, but th they, they, you know, if, if you read this, <laughs> it just, I mean, you'd have to be, You'd have to be proud. It'd be like I'm being on Nixon's enemies list if you if you did, you know, get singled out by him. Um, but same old, same old. Robert De Niro, a very low IQ individual, has received too many shots to the head <laughs> by real boxers in movies. I watched him last night and truly believes he may be punch drunk. Wake up, punchy. <sighs> so I did do some traveling when I was um, last with you. I, I drove past that now shuttered uh, auto plant that made the cruise, right? name of the car and I mean it's just it's a it looks like a yeah a ghost town and to think of all the people who worked there very very depressing sight um, but also as I was um, driving I couldn't help but notice that Geez, we here in Pennsylvania pay some really high prices for our gas. <laughs> I just want to say, 
I, I, I really was stunned by the, by the difference. When I got um, into Ohio, the price was easily 30 cents less uh, a gallon, I think. And that's on the turnpike where you figure it's, you know, you're not getting cheap gas. And then when I got into Michigan, good God almighty, I saw one sign for $1.99 a gallon. And the highest I saw was $2.09 a gallon. And then when I got back, <laughs> I, when I got back, I read this on Twitter. It was from the Tribune Review. 12-28-18. Western Pennsylvania motorists are enjoying cheaper gas prices this week as the cost of gas fell almost nine cents a gallon to an average of two dollars and fifty-three cents. Jeez, I mean like really we're paying sixty cents I mean that adds up sixty cents a gallon more? like the bike lane. That's why I'm taking the bus. It's why, I mean, geez, around here, they really don't want you to drive. Or they want to they wanna break you of the habit, I guess. But I, I really, I had no idea there was that discrepancy, uh, that huge. And I suppose the people in, you know, Michigan don't even, you know, they don't realize how much more money they have jingling around in their pockets because I uh, suspect it's because their state doesn't tax gas as much as ours. Who knows? It's just something I saw. So, um, Obit, you know, looking at a life that's already been lived is is so much more satisfying somehow because you know the beginning, the middle, and the <laughs> end than, you know, dealing with things that are still here. Uh, when I saw that this woman had died, I thought, oh, my God. I, I just, she gave me such pleasure in so many ways. She was a... Um, strange that she would give me pleasure in so many ways because uh, she was she was a cloistered uh, nun uh, a Roman Catholic who devoted herself to a contemplative life of, of prayer and yet became a huge international television star. <laughs> How do you do that? And I mean, so unlikely. Her name was Sister Wendy. Sister Wendy Beckett. And I am sorry to tell you that she is no longer with us. She died at the age of, uh, of 88 in her native, uh, well, actually, it's not her native England, in England. Um, 
her death was confirmed by the Carmelite Monastery, uh, where she had lived uh, in a trailer on the grounds for for decades. And if you don't know who she is, I would hope that sometime after uh, you've listened to this that you make a point of looking her up <laughs> and seeing her in action. I first saw her and was just, it was like one of those things where you see this and you can't believe what you're looking at. Here was this old nun in um, full habit and um, these big glasses and buck teeth. So here you have this buck tooth, bespectacled, little teeny, full habited nun with her hands, you know, Sister Wendy. And she'd be standing in front of a of a painting, a great painting, and she'd explain the painting to you. And it was in her explanations and the fact that she garnered such joy from art that you were just sucked in to her joy, her narrative, and what especially made it so funny, her extreme sensuality. <laughs> you couldn't make up what came out of her mouth. And that's how I came to see her, because PBS picked it up. She's looking up at the Sistine Chapel and she says, He's not alive. All he can do is lift up a flaccid finger. And to my friend who says, It's flaccid. All right, tiny said it. A flaccid finger. And out of the clouds whirls down the god of power in his great flying cloak. There is a a world. This woman would look at a painting and go nuts with joy. Uh, how did, I mean, the story of her is so bizarre. She, um, until she was 61 years old, she had been uh, cloistered, essentially, a model of total worldly renunciation. She lived in a windowless trailer on the grounds of this monastery and spent her time in prayer and solitude as much as possible. Anything she ever earned as this unlikely television star, <laughs> she immediately turned over to the Carmelite uh, order. 
she subsisted mainly on skim milk and rarely spoke to anyone. She prayed seven hours a day and went out only to morning mass or to a library for books. And in her passion for total self-denial, she had not seen a movie since 1945. She had not visited a museum. She had not seen a painting except the paintings reproduced in the books that she took from the library. And she read about art voraciously and then began writing about it. And her first book, Contemporary Women Artists, was published in 1988. And three years later, a guy from the BBC says to her, could we film you, please, standing in front of some of the art in uh, the National Gallery, Britain's National Gallery, and just talk about what it is you're seeing? And she said it didn't even occur to her to say no. She didn't feel it was intruding into her hermit-like existence. She just thought, oh, to be able to stand and, sh and to share my feelings about art with other people. Went nuts. Could not get enough. This nun, this little stooped over nun with her wars and robbers, and, 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 and she made whatever it is she was standing in front of so amazing because you'd see it through her eyes of wonder. It puts me back to what I started with, with the little girl and her grandmother looking out the screen door at the falling snow. It was like that. But it says here in her obit that audiences were, were captivated by her humanity, by the way she would bring the paintings to life. And, for instance, standing beside a Greek wine jar painted 2,500 years ago at the fall of Troy. And here's Sister Wendy. And he saw how young she was and how lively, lovely, and brave. He fell in love, but he killed her. Oh, God. Here's one, and it's of two people after they've had sex. And here's, here's Sister Wendy, this cloistered nun, standing in front of it, and here's what she says, and, and if you still are wondering why she would be a hit, here's what Sister Wendy says. Oh, I love all those glistening strands of hair, and her pubic hair is so soft. 
entlassen. If you've never seen her, Sister Wendy, who could appreciate even pubic hair in a painting. Uh, for my, um, I think it was my 50th birthday, um, a bunch of people put together such an extravaganza for me. Uh, <laughs> um, great songs that were written and performed. Um, what a what a party that was. My God, I wish we had taped the whole thing because it, I put it on the internet today and people would go nuts. Um, and one of the surprises in it was a a documentary that had been filmed in my home, unbeknownst to me, um, by the extraordinary documentarian Tony Buba, who is well, well known, and if you don't know him, you should, B-U-B-A, Tony Buba, and he agreed to do this. <laughs> he shot it single camera and my extraordinary producer at the time, who was also Doug Hirth's producer, Lawrence Gaines, one of the most talented human beings I've ever known. He narrated it, but narrated it as Julia Childs, because he did a perfect Julia Childs. Now, I can't do any voice. And Lawrence was like a 300-pound black man. But he did Julia Childs to such a T that, and Tony filmed it so beautifully, so that all you ever saw was his hand in the camera, motioning. They went into my refrigerator and made fun of stuff in there. They went into my cabinets and made fun of my stuff. They wandered into my living room. And who was sitting in my living room? Sister Wendy. Or at least a friend of mine who totally nailed her. Total full habit, the glasses, the voice down. And she proceeded to go through my house as Sister Wendy talking about the art in my house. And I do believe pubic hairs came into it there too. It was a riot. In the New York Times, Frank Bruni, uh, who was a critic then, uh, said of Sister Wendy, the incongruity of such passion and often sensuous statements coming from a hunched, bespectacled 67-year-old nun is the secret to much of the charm and success of this woman. What a fascinating life she lived. Um, and please enjoy her. Um, she was born, by the way, in South Africa, in Johannesburg, 
and uh, she studied literature at Oxford in the early 50s, and she was still a nun, but she was a teaching nun. And so she ended up uh, teaching, but otherwise living this strict code of silence. She graduated at the top of her Oxford class. She returned to South Africa. She taught for 15 years there. And then she had some seizures and learned that she had epilepsy. And she then said, she asked the Vatican if she could simply stop teaching and just live a life of solitude. And so in 1970, she put herself in that trailer at the Carmelite monastery, monastery, eventually writing some 25 books, including collections of poetry. And it's those books that brought the world to her, her books on art, and brought the BBC calling, and hence we got to know her. Um, give yourself some fun and, and, and look her up. The New York Times obit says, one of the most improbable art critics in history. <laughs> Sister Wendy. Sister Wendy Beckett. Oh, God. Love her. Okay. Um, Tony says, Lynn, you have Netflix. Have you seen this? What? Have you seen what? It seems to be a big deal. Call me old-fashioned, but I'll be damned if I'm going to watch a movie where everyone is walking around with blindfolders on. It sounds too much like the country I'm living in with Trump supporters. Maybe this year we'll, they will remove their blinders, but I doubt it. What? I don't know what you're talking Oh, Bird Box. You're talking about Bird Box. I've seen the, um, yeah, I saw the trailer, but it didn't look like anything I wanted to watch. So, oh. uh, Tony says, by the way, P.S. Sister Wendy was awesome. <laughs> right, she was. A life well lived and uh, happy new year. Mary says, I love today's show. I have fond mem memories of Doug and Lawrence. Oh, God, happy new year. One of the things they did in my refrigerator is they made fun of the fact that if I invited anyone for dinner, I always made the same thing because I wasn't much of a cook. So it was chili chicken fricassee. <laughs> and they pulled one. It was in my freezer. It was in cartons. Everything was labeled chili chicken fricassee. And so Julia Childs going through it was, a, Lawrence's Julia Childs was ap brilliant. I mean, brilliant and then they found my pot in the spite there was <laughs> these big things of pot they came oh god it that was a great party that was a great party Oh, something else that I, um, Happy New Year to you, too, <laughs> for those of you <laughs> saying that to me. Happy New Year. We should only pray. 
Um, and I have a caller. Hello, caller. Hey, Lynn, it's Mike in D.C. I knew it was you. Do you know sometimes I thought, I said to myself, it's Mike. I knew it. Hi. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So I wanted to talk about the happiness um, quotient that you mentioned. Yeah. And the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. um, I think most people think that money would make them happy, uh, right? Yeah. And that the pursuit of happiness is really about the pursuit of unfettered wealth. But the irony is money doesn't make us any happier because if it did, suicide rates would be lower in rich people than it is in poor people. And it isn't. We don't know what's going to make us happy. No. Addicts think that more cocaine makes them happy or workaholics think working makes them happy. When in reality, it's most likely the opposite, being of service to others. Um, finding ways to be helpful, um, you know, so I don't think we even know as people what makes us happy, let alone how to pursue it. Well, some people do figure it out, that it sure as hell is not money. Um, there was, uh, I watched a lot of old movies, and there was one on just yesterday called You Can't Take It With You, which is a pretty famous old movie, but it's about that. It's about people who say, to hell with this rat race. I mean, to hell with this. I'm going to do what gives me joy. And obviously they manage to somehow do it. I you know. But they really get on. The bad guys in it are people who think money, who are going after money and power. And, uh, but that's America. That's, that's what our value system tells us, right? too bad or what corporate America tells us and we're all stupid enough to believe it I mean how many times in your life have you said oh when I get this oh I want to get this then you get it and you're like yeah, oh, yeah why did I want this mm -hmm. well you might be happy so for a little bit I don't even you know? think, yeah I don't even think we know what the pursuit of happiness is you know what money does get and uh, you know a certain amount of money what a certain amount of money gets you is a sense of security. security. And that right. is, uh, I think that's a reasonable thing if people strive to get themselves to a place where, you know, they're not going to be homeless. <laughs> but we never... And what was that amount? I don't know. We never seem to have enough. Study, it was $70,000. Uh, that Couldn't you remember that... that uh. um, computer guy who had a big company paid everybody in this company $70,000 oh, a year right. because he found out anything more than that didn't really make you happy. Well, Barbara's writing in and, and taking you up uh, saying you're wrong. She says, uh, the idea that money can't buy happiness has been disproved by science, at least up to a point. Experts say that happiness does increase with wealth but the correlation peaks at $75,000 per year. So, like that. so she's agreeing. She's agreeing with us. It's 75. It's not 3 million. It's not 20 million. It's having enough so that you sleep at night. And what I have found, because I do know a lot of very wealthy people, is there's never enough. I mean, wealthy people go after money more than anybody. They just keep wanting more, 
and more and more. And I don't know that they're even ever stopped to say, why? <laughs> why do I need more? It's just, it's insanity. I don't know. Yeah, and I think that people confuse that pursuit of happiness with pursuit of, of wealth. Well, well, you know, wealthy people know. look happy. You know, they get the best seats at all. They, they get to go to every concert they want. They drive the nicest cars. They live in big houses. They have people waiting on them. They can have yachts. They can go wherever they want. That sure looks good to people who don't have access to that. But if you were able but to be with them, but th no, they're not happy necessarily. They can be the most miserable human beings in the world. Seen a lot of them up and close. Nobody gets a free ride. Yeah. Nobody no. gets to be not have problems in their life. Right. Everybody is going to have problems in your life. Right. If you win the lottery, wait till you see how many problems come your way. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that might be it too, is that people oh. want to pursue a not difficult life. They want to. They want to have not not any problems. They want things to be smooth. But see, that's and not life. Sorry, but I'm that's not, not sure life. That's life. That's not life. I mean, God, obviously, that is not life. Life is filled with pain. I, 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 obviously, it's filled with pain and loss and, and all of that. Human emo all those human emotions are necessary. And why we think we're somehow in a bad state when one of the less happy emotions are front and center is a problem in our own heads. We have to embrace it all. Really? I went, to a I went to a therapist once went during a really difficult time, and she told me, your job right now is just to hold on, because this will change. Yeah. So your job right now is just to hold on, because it does change. Things change. Sometimes That's right. for the worse, most often for the better. And it's only till after you look at your life in an obituary that you say, oh, yeah, it wasn't a shit show. You know, the, the one thing that you can always be sure of is things change, <laughs> right? Nothing stays. And that sometimes makes you sad and sometimes makes you happy. It depends on what's leaving, what's changing, what, what are you losing. I don't know, but this whole idea that happiness is the be-all and end-all is just wrong. Be a good thing to remember if we can. Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah. How about a real New Year? You know, how, how about a, isn't it, yeah, there it is. Happy everything. Happy, 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 happy. It's no wonder we think that's the purpose, to be happy. It's no wonder. It's written into everything we say and do and every celebration. And I think what it's why so many, it, doesn't the suicide rate always go up around Christmas and the holidays? Yeah. Why? Well, it's because you're supposed to be happy, I think. No, it's because you're with your family. Yeah. Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't like any time where you're forced to be happy. Like, yeah, I know. Leave, let's be happy. Right, it's right. Christmas, let's be happy. I don't like any of those. I hate them, too. It just leads to right. dissatisfaction. Right, and, and often a hangover. The Norman Rockwell way that life is supposed to be, 
it makes me feel sometimes like, oh, wow, I don't have anything. Well, don't you remember? Yeah, I remember as a kid, and I'm sure I was hardly the only one, but this will show my age. I mean, growing up with those early TV shows, uh, Father Knows Best and, you know, the Donna Reed show, where these families were, they were like cartoons. And and they, they bore no resemblance to my family. And so I thought there was something wrong with my family. Because it wasn't this stupid cartoon of a family. Father knows best. Anyway, good to hear and from you. And then you saw a Christmas right. story and you were like, oh my God, everybody's famous. Yeah, right, right, right. Christmas story said it right. <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks, Mike, and Happy New Year. You too. Okay, bye. We have a another call. Hello. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Why, hey, um, why do you sound like you're going to commit suicide? Wait, wait, ha- wait. I got like a cold or something. Oh, everybody's got up. a cold. Yeah, okay. Okay, Um, I always say don't get your hopes up too high because life will disappoint you every time. <laughs> I always, I kind of believe in Murphy's Law. What's going to go wrong? I, whatever, you know, that saying. And it seems that way. That's how I think of it. Yeah. You and know, I think people too over diagnose and overthink life. Just live it for Christ's sake. Right. <laughs> That's what I say. Right. Too many writers about this and that. Just live it and let it go as it goes. Let the cards roll. Let the dice roll, whatever. I, I just, I find that so annoying when they, this has to be this way. You should have this amount of money when you get this age, or you should do this, or you should. You should go to the doctors more and all that bullshit. Just live it. I, that's how I look at it. Just live it. You know? One step at a time. Yep. I hear you. That's it. Happy New Year. Okay, we'll see you. Bye. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye. <laughs> happy, 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 happy New Year. Um, ooh, there's something else that I saw in the... You know, I wasn't doing a lot of reading of news but did you see this story and i know there have been things like this before but it's just mind-boggling how um they did brain surgery this is also in south africa they did brain surgery on this uh musician who um had a tumor in his brain and in order for the doctors to know they weren't doing any harm he had to be awake through the surgery and this has happened before where if you're having brain surgery you're awake and if you're a musician they want you playing your instrument so if they see all of a sudden uh uh-oh not playing as well we must have hit something let's back up and it's called awake craniotomy and it they drill a hole in a person's head and um, they operate on parts of the brain. And um, so they ask this guy to just keep playing his guitar throughout. And, you know, again, if he all of a sudden felt his fingers weren't working as well or his, his they, they would know to uh, maybe probe uh, elsewhere. Now, 
when I read the article, though, what blew me away was that there is evidence of these kinds of awake craniotomies from prehistoric times. Hey, that means when they drilled the hole there, they weren't drilling. They must have just <laughs> smashed into somebody's without benefit of... Uh, I, I, anyway, but fossil records show many, I mean, there's more than one, of people who clearly had holes in their skulls and survived as early as 8,000 years ago. And these don't look like, you know, someone trying to kill them. It looks like a probe. So they've decided they think that those kind of uh, craniotomies were being tried. I can't even imagine. Um... In 2015, there was a saxophonist who performed <laughs> during his operation, and that was in, in Spain. And uh, here's something else I guess I learned. Maybe I knew, but the brain itself has no nerves in it. So once they're, they have broken through the, the sensitive nerves in the skin and muscle and membranes that, that are around the brain, they go into the brain and you can be fully awake. You feel no pain with them probing inside your brain. There is no pain. There are no pain receptors in our brain. Uh, anyway, I hope I never have to do that. I would find that a little unsettling, I think. Okay, can we do another obituary? I'm telling you, it's a new beginning, and I like lives. This one is nowhere near as delightful as uh, Sister Wendy. As a matter of fact, it's friggin' frightening. <laughs> but I found it extraordinary. Uh, this is a woman named Gertrude Beasley. And she wrote a memoir in 1925. And she's been dead for many, many, many years. But she wrote a memoir in 1925 about growing up in a small rural Texas town. And I am going to read you the first line. 1925. Thirty years ago, I lay in the womb of a woman conceived in a sexual act of rape, being carried during the prenatal period by an unwilling and rebellious mother, finally bursting from that womb, only to be tormented in a family whose members I despised or pitied and brought into association with people whom I should never have chosen. 
Well, that's a bright view of one's life, isn't it? So <laughs> it's quite the opposite <laughs> of Sister Wendy. This is one pissed off woman. At a time when women were not supposed to be pissed off or writing things like uh, that. That autobiography was actually heralded by critics as brilliant. It was published in Paris by the publisher who published Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway. And he thought that this woman was every bit on their par. Gertrude Beasley. No one knows what end up she she sort of disappeared totally from history. And then somebody put out her book. Excuse me, my foot itches. <laughs> Excuse me, I got a itchy foot. Jeez, bad. It's a bad idea because now it'll just itch more, won't it? Okay. Um her book was reissued in 1989, and, and she'd been dead for decades. And the novelist, Larry McMurtry, what was his? The uh, uh, Larry McMurtry, those great Western things he wrote. Lonesome Dove, right? Because he thought she was, well, he says, she belongs in the first rank of uh, of writers, she is the forgotten woman of uh, of literature, and they tried to find out what happened to her. Um, and it wasn't good. Let me see if I can. Uh, Gertrude was the only one of these horrible Beasleys. <laughs> she said they were just horrible. Here's another line she wrote about. I shall protest against having been brought into the world without any heritage, mental, moral, or physical. To my dying day, this pissed off woman wrote. She had 12 siblings. She was the only one who went to school. She got a teacher teaching degree and ended up getting a master's from the University of Chicago. How she comes out of this poverty and gets to the University of Chicago. And this would be when women weren't even going to college much. She then gets commissioned by National Geographic to write about Japan and travels to Russia, Soviet Union where she ends up writing for a journal uh, edited by Margaret Sanger called Birth Control Review, because clearly birth control was something that she thought was a good idea because she had not wanted to be born. Uh, in her memoir, wait, wait, wait. H.L. Mencken said her book was profoundly serious. Uh, among her friends, 
Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher and Nobel laureate, who said her book is truthful, which of course is illegal. So McMurtry tried to find out what had become of her. He sent postcards, tried to get in touch with all the 17 Beasleys in the Abilene, Texas phone book. Not a one of them answered. Turns out half the copies of her memoir were seized and destroyed by United States customs inspectors. And they also believe that the Texas Rangers the state's top law enforcement agency pulled copies from store shelves and deep-sixed it in general. All I know is she ends up, what they found is she ended up somehow getting back to New York from her European travels, and she was committed to a psychiatric clinic in Long Island. She never left. Died there in 1955. an angry, furious woman like her would, yes, have ended up in a psychiatric hospital. I don't know. Sorry, I didn't do justice to that one. Um, Benjamin says, do you remember the peace, piss, Christ? Yes. That was, uh, well, it was a crucifix suspended in a mason jar of urine that had, you know, people went nuts. I definitely remember that. Sister Wendy was asked about this piece. And she defended it based on the artist's rationale that it was a statement on man's inhumanity to man. It was wonderful seeing her describe what job she de what joy she derived from the art she discussed she'll be missed by many yeah so i can see so sister wendy defended piss christ wow wow well are we done pretty much was it oh no i can't tell six from an eight i can't see anymore Oh, dear. I have all these things here, but I don't know if I want to talk. Uh, I've been carrying this around forever, so let's get rid of it. Is it healthy to sleep with a window open? Now, I think it is, because I, even in the winter, will have a window open. Um, and it says here that people in Germany and Scandinavia often insist on keeping bedroom windows open throughout the year. Um, and I remember there was this hysterical, where did I read about Benjamin Franklin and John Adams, I think, sharing a bed in their travels or in Philly or whatever. It's not unusual for people to share beds. And how I think think it was Franklin who wanted the windows opened 
and one and Adams going berserk. I'm so so I think obviously there's always difficulty when you got two different people with two different ideas of comfort at night. But here is the president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and he says, if you think about sleep evolutionarily, it makes sense that humans would prefer a physical environment like a cave, a place that is dark, and cool. Um, and his recommendation is that the room you sleep in be no warmer than 68. That's too hot for me. Um, and very, very dark. Just saying. In general, if you want to sleep well, keep out the light. Maintain a cool temperature. dark and cold. I'm going to change cool to cold so that you can, you know, bundle up under your heavy blanket. Hey, did any of you get heavy blankets? Because I didn't. I want some reviews on your heavy blankets. Those of you who actually bought one or got one for Christmas or something like that. Hmm? Heavy blankets. And uh, that does finish us up. Well, it was not a normal kind of a show, but it was a show. And uh, indulge me while I slide slowly into the new year with you. Because <laughs> we got to pace ourselves. Okay? Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good day. Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at cghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoint of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.